Welcome to the Learnability Podcast. Now, before we start, I'd like to explain that at the moment, we've got some builders in who are repairing a leak in the roof. And during this interview, there was a little bit of background noise of hammering and banging. Now, I've tried to edit out as much as I can, but if during the interview you do hear something which sounds like a herd of elephants trying to tap dance on the roof, then you'll know why that is. Anyway, let's get started. According to the experts, every decade, our quality of living goes up. So it seems somewhat ironic that every decade, our stress levels also go up. So today we're going to be talking to somebody who has helped thousands of people control their stress levels, including primary school children, teenagers, adults, teachers, and even premenopausal women. So can we have a big round of applause for Emma Reynolds? <laughs> Welcome, Emma. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ian. Nice it's to be here. Good. We just had a pre-conversation before we started recording and you were explaining about some of the amazing things that you're involved in. Could you just quickly give us a, an overview of what it is that you do, Emma? Okay, so I am a mindfulness teacher. Sometimes I get called an expert. I'm not quite sure how you differentiate between one or the other. Um, I trained in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a course to help people lower their stress and anxiety levels and also to help people who are dealing with body discomfort, pain, ongoing problems, diseases, etc, etc. And this was, not to go too much into this, but this was created originally by a doctor, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, in the late 70s and it has now become the gold standard for mindfulness courses because it's just excellent. I did it, of course, as a participant and I found it you know, I know that sounds a bit of a cliche, but life changing. It really gives you the tools to turn up to the present moment experience, whatever it is that's happening. Usually there's something happening and know how to basically stay present, stay calm, be kind to yourself, be kind to other people. So um, it's a very powerful experience uh, being, you know, stepping into that place of being more mindful. And then on from then, I've really... Although I do the eight-week course, what's ended up happening is that I've been invited to use it in different ways. So I've, I've worked with um, an international publisher recently creating their first primary mindfulness course. So that will be coming out this year. So well, when, you say pri when you say primary, you mean for school children? Yes, for school children. So it's a, it's, um, it's a whole course which is to do with their social-emotional learning, but it's specifically for pairing up mindfulness with their social-emotional lear learning course that they already have to allow teachers to bring mindfulness into the classroom through activities, through um, audios. Um, there's also some videos there as well. Um, so that's coming out this year. Um, but then, I mean, my, mindfulness is sort of like mindfulness for everybody. Who hasn't got a wandering mind that can go into places of stress from time to time? So I'm of a certain age where I'm now perimenopausal and that is also a time when not only are you possibly quite stressed already but then you have all your hormones changing. So it's like being a teenager all over again and now 
the hormones that buffered you from stress are now starting to disappear out of your body and so stress is suddenly just ramped up basically plus the symptoms that you have are also very stressful so we've got that i've got sort of that bubbling away so i've kind of got the education bubbling away i've got perimenopausal bubbling away i also work in the corporate sector i work um, a lot with corporate groups because again there's a whole area there of people especially with everything that's been going on recently where people are at a loss to know what to do with themselves and corporations are at a loss to do to know what to do with people they know you know from experience with the what was it called I can't remember what, it, what they called it now. Something like it's basically the great leaving. It's the the, the movement of people leaving companies because they realised that they weren't being treated very well in their in their um, workplace. They weren't being helped in any way when they were going through their moments of stress. And of course, we've all just been through in a huge uh, load of stress with the pandemic. And so corporations and and businesses are realising. We need to look after our people, you know, we don't want to lose them. I mean, anyway, we don't want to, you know, for people to suffer, but people are leaving their businesses. So what can we do to support them and actually realise that they're not just numbers, that they are people that have emotions and feelings and that, that life can sometimes be tough. So to give them actual tools to help them to, um, to yeah, to just be a little bit calmer is, is really powerful. So it's it's like mindfulness plus it's like who who doesn't need this <laughs> right as this podcast is aimed at how we learn uh, how we grow and how education works could you just give us a quick summary of your educational background and how you actually got into mindfulness okay so the time Timeline runs, I went to a, a very nice school. I come from Shropshire in England and it was a, a, a pleasant school. I can't say there were any great highlights from school. I neither absolutely loved it nor, nor hated it either. It, was, um, it did its job. But funnily enough, it isn't the place that I then learnt the skills that I used in my life. So um, I actually did dance and drama after school and that's something I did from the age of 12 and when I got to 18 I didn't really have a clear view of what I was going to do with my what I was going to do with my life you know that terrible choice you've got to make at 16 or 18 it's just it just seems ridiculous right I think in this day and age we realize now that you nothing's set in stone and you can just keep changing but you know at the time it felt like I was making massive life choices and I dabbled with the idea of going to art school, but I ended up going to drama school. Completely fell into it. Didn't, it wasn't like I had a burning desire from the age of three to be an actress or anything, but it was an amazing experience. And, and not only to learn to act, but all the other things that, that theatre can, that can give you. You know, everything from you know, fantastic knowledge of, of literature and, and, and art and history, because you have to, you know, go into the, the backgrounds of the different characters that you're playing, but also, well, I mean, learning your scripts, you know, gosh, what a lot of memory I had to use learning to, you know, hold in the whole of a Shakespeare play in my head, listening to each other, brilliant listening skills, of course, a lot of improv that you do at drama school, educating yourself how to use your body properly, your voice properly, um, all, all skills that have really stood me in, in good stead. And, and communication, you know, communication skills. 
really, really important. Working together as a team to create a project, it's not just about you. You are an ensemble. You are working with other people to create something. All really useful. And so I then um, worked as an actress for quite a while. I worked then for a very long time as a theatre director, a voiceover artist. Um, I got, stepped into the world of events, working with corporate groups, offering actors for events. And then, so this is all sort of moving along. And then suddenly I had a baby uh, at 41 and I got completely stressed out. <laughs> Because I've always had a very busy mind, very creative mind, but that creative mind is a double-edged sword. It can take you to some really wonderful places. Look at all the wonderful um, art that's been created by humanity. And it can also take you to some really dark places. So I also suffered quite badly from, from depression and um, anxiety. And when I had a baby, of course, that's another moment for a woman of um, fluctuating hormones. And also no sleep. So add that to running a company with 16 people who could WhatsApp you at any moment to say, I'm sick, I'm leaving, I've lost my trousers, you know, and you'd be like, oh God, I can't cope with all of this, it's too much. And so I, I, I just went, right, I need to do something. And just totally by random, again, I saw someone's post on Facebook talking about um, an app that you could download and it would help you lower your stress levels. So I tried it. And at the beginning, I listened to it probably, you're supposed to do like a 10-minute section. I probably did about three minutes and then fell asleep because I was just so tired from being a, a, a new mum. But little by little, I stayed with it. And little by little, I noticed that something kind of magical was happening. That somehow just sitting for 10 minutes and doing a meditation was creating a different way of being in the world. So I was a little less stressed, a little less anxious, a little less you know, uh, impatient, judgmental. And I was like, there's some, there's something in this. And so I went from just doing the meditations to actually going, well, what is this thing called mindfulness that people are banging on about? And then I found this course, MBSR course, which I did. And then that, that really was the light bulb moment because it wasn't just about sitting down and doing 10 minutes of meditation, which by the way, has a really, really bad rap you know everyone you say the word meditation even today and a lot of people sort of think of oming and you know hinduism gurus whatever you know sitting in the lotus position and sitting isn't really uh, sitting down and meditating is really just that sitting down maybe closing your eyes and stopping and noticing what's going on internally you know what's going on in your mind what thoughts have you got how is that driving your emotions how is your body feeling? And then if you notice that you are, you know, maybe a little bit up on the stress level there, bringing yourself down with some calming breaths or, you know, a practice. So it's, it's nothing more than that. But I found that not only doing that, but also then exploring mindfulness and what it can bring to you um, was, the really, was really the turning point because it's like, that's great, I can sit and meditate for 10 minutes in the morning, but what do I do now in this moment when I'm standing in the shopping queue, I'm time pressured and I've got, I don't know, people who can't find their loose change at the bottom of their purse and I am about to explode. <laughs> you know, I know I shouldn't be angry, but I am angry. I know I shouldn't be impatient, but I am impatient. What do I do with myself? Because if I don't get that under control, I'm going to take that 
into the next moments of my day. And then when the really big things happen, I'm going to just explode. I mean, that was my you know, experience. I, except for I didn't explode outwards, I exploded inwards. I, I took it inside, which is why I got depression, rather than outside where I'd be looking for anger management. So um, that was the journey, all completely falling into it by mistake. Although, you know, is it Freud that said there are no mistakes? So it's uh, some way planned, maybe. I don't know. There's two things that I'm really that I would really like to talk about. The first thing is, how do you become a mindfulness expert? And I know you've already mentioned about the business about whether you are an expert or not. For me, an expert is anybody who knows sufficient to be able to help other people who don't have that knowledge. So the fact that you are able to give classes and workshops on mindfulness that for me makes you a mindfulness expert and the second thing is about how mindfulness and education with learning all dovetail together so do you have any preference which of those two subjects you'd like to talk about at the moment let's let's talk about education for the moment shall we right on that so how well there has been a, a great awakening I think, just generally in the world around the need, as I said before, to kind of to to look after people and their mental states. And I think that absolutely within the education department, there has been a, a, a huge realisation that this mindfulness stuff could really help both teachers and students. And there has been a little bit of a tricky point where I think teachers have seen it and gone, oh, great, this is a sticky plaster for that chaotic group that I've got. I will do some mindfulness with them. However, as a mindfulness teacher, you rather have to walk the talk. So there's no point standing in your classroom shouting, will you not focus, you know, because that's, that's what we've been doing since time immemorial, right? How do you, I mean, I talk to teachers, I say, you know, you probably spend quite a bit of your time saying, you know, concentrate, focus, pay attention. Do you teach your students how to pay attention? Do you know how to pay attention yourself? Now, there was a Harvard study done a few years ago where they looked at people's wandering minds. And what they did was they obviously asked the participants, can we put an app on your phone and it will just ping up and it would just ask a very simple question, where are you right now? Like, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And so they would discover that people would be, you know, walking down the street, but they were actually thinking about their argument with their ex-partner, or they were having dinner, but actually they were planning and slightly worrying about that thing that's going to happen tomorrow at work. I.e. that they, their mind and their body wasn't in the same place. Now, just think about that for yourselves for a minute. You know, how much time do you think you spend actually on task and how much of the time are you on automatic pilot, sort of do, going through the motions of what you're doing, but your mind is flipping away into the past or the future? Or it is present, but it's very much judging the present moment experience. Well, in the, um, the research, they discovered that 47% of the time people's minds were wandering. That was the mean average, okay? And when I say this to people, especially people who come to my sessions, they're like, wow, only 47% of the time, that would be amazing. I'm probably about 90% of the time. Because I'm constantly or rehashing the past, why did this happen, if only, you know, and that can be like two minutes ago, that can be 
five years ago, that can be your childhood. Or you're stuck in the future and so many people are there at the moment. Now, what's going to happen? How's this going to pan out? Oh, the future is so uncertain. To which I say, when was it ever certain? We've never, unless you've got a, a, a magical way of moving into the future, we were, you, no one's ever known the future. It has only ever been imagined. And so this is where it's important to start harnessing where your mind wanders, right? Because if it's wandering into the future and you're stressing yourself out because of worst case scenarios, guess what? You're bringing that worst case scenario to the present moment. And now you're feeling, you know, through your fight and flight mechanism, you're now feeling all of that anxiety and stress now about something that's happening in the future we've got no idea about. Now, if you think about that from an education point of view, that's teachers, right? They're constantly planning and, and trying to imagine scenarios in the future. And if they're not careful, they can really get themselves tied up with that. And the same with students, right? You've only got to say to your students, by the way, we've got an exam next week or a test. And then, you know, watch, <laughs> watch what happens next. Do they go, oh, that'll be interesting. I'll stay open to that experience and, you know, not judge how it's going to go. No, of course not. Their amygdala at the back of their brain, which is sort of searching for problems, goes, this is change. This is new and different. I don't like change, new and different. And I don't know how it's going to go. When I don't know how it's going to go, the mind fills the void. How does it fill the void? It rattles around back in memory and goes, ooh, tests, what do tests look like? Oh, I remember that last test I did, pull it into the future. Now, I will predict that this will go how the last test went. Now, so for some students, they'll be like, great, I love tests, because their last test experience or their last 10 test experiences were all right, actually. But there's going to be a lot of them that even if their test went well, they will you know, project a future scenario which is not terribly good. Why? Because we also have a tendency towards negativity. We have a negativity bias. So we're five to seven times more likely to remember negative experiences than positive. Now this is this is all harking back to um, survival mechanisms and you know if you think about your day so far, what went well, right? You got up, you were alive. You didn't maybe have a major illness. You didn't kill yourself, uh, you know, putting your hand in the toaster. Your children got off to school or, you know, think of all the things that went well, right? Do you sit and go, gosh, I've had a good day so far. The sun came out. I'm alive. My children are alive or whoever's alive. No, of course we don't. We just go, well, that's just normal life. But the minute someone, you know, crashes into the car, you stub your toe, you have an email, you know, you receive an email, which is a little bit rude. Boom. That becomes the headlines for your day. And all the other stuff that went well has gone for nothing. Why? Because the, the mind is hardwired to remember so-called negative experiences so that you can learn from them and you don't do it again. You stubbed your toe last time. Don't do it again. You know. You drove a little too quickly and you nearly had an accident. Don't do it again. So it makes sense. But the problem is that our view of our world is so out of balance. So back to education again. When you're there with, you know, with your students or whether you are the student, just start to notice your tendency of mind. First of all, is your mind wandering? You know, literally, 
when you're learning something, are you present? Or are you finding that your mind is wandering off all the time? And if you are, what can you do to bring yourself back? So there's a kind of receiving information, like, are you present? I mean, if you're literally sitting in a class and you're only there for 53% of the time, that's only half the class that you're actually, <laughs> you know, absorbing, for starters. Then on the other side... Oh, that, that, that noise is our alarm to say that it's, in a moment we'll be doing our learnability quiz where we test the expert. Um, please please just, just finish off there for a moment. Okay, so then uh, the other side of it is, so how can mindfulness help you get the information in? How can it allow you to concentrate and focus, okay? And not be wandering off into the past or the future? or judging the present and then getting emotionally involved with the present experience, or when you are literally in that place where you've got to reproduce that information that you've, you've learned, you know, whether it's in an exam, a test, or whether you've got to do a presentation or what have you, how can you come at that experience without your amygdala, which is your, your smoke alarm, overriding the experience, i.e. how can you stay calm in those so-called stressful moments because you know let's face it doing a presentation now i'm talking there's a certain level of adrenaline and cortisol rolling around because i'm in presentation mode it i am slightly needing to have that adrenaline and cortisol to perform like we do when we present and also in exams we need a certain level of you know oomph to get us there and to get the, the memory working but if we've got too much of it so we're sitting in an exam and, you know, going, oh, God, I can't, this is so stressful. I can't even, I can't remember anything. Well, what's going on there? It's because you're, you've got an amygdala hijack. Your amygdala has gone, we're in danger zone right now. We're panic, panic. We're about to be eaten by a tiger. Get her into fight and flight mode. And it's like, that's the last thing you need in the middle of an exam. What you need is your calm place, your rest and digest place where you've calm from going from parasympathetic to sympathetic and that you have your memory actually accessible because when you're in stress mode your amygdala pushes your prefrontal cortex brain sort of out of the way as it works it's like there's no time for thinking we've literally got to run we've got to run we've got to fight or we've got to um you know we've got to act in some way but actually that's not what you've got to do in an exam what you've got to do is sit be quiet calm down and access those areas of your memory so that you can bring the information forward and use it. I've got the builders directly above us now. <laughs> so I, I will probably have to re re-record these <laughs> questions. Yeah. Okay. Right. So let's just take a, an intermission then to, to look at the, the, mindf uh, the mindfulness quiz. Uh, three questions for you, Emma. Uh, question number one. Well, you've already mentioned John Kabat-Zinn the famous learnability, well, if, if you could call him the father of learnability. Although he was born in New York, bollocks, I've given the answer. <laughs> Point to me. The, the question was, where was he born? Right. Okay. So that's one point. One point that I've given you there. Right. Okay. I may. I may have to to invent another another question. <laughs> All right. Second question. In the early two thousands, or, or the the early noughties, as some people say, there was lots of different 
attitudes and definitions of mindfulness. And a group of experts came together to try and finally get a consensus of what mindfulness actually is. And what they came up with was that they said that mindful, the definition of mindfulness is based on two factors. The first factor is the self-regulation of our attention. And the second one was what? Non-judging. So non-judging the present moment experience. I'll give you a point for that. Well done. Very good. Uh, it actually, what, I've, what it said on the internet, because of course I just looked through various websites, it's, it's maintaining the attitude of openness, acceptance and curiosity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is, in, in the MBSR course, they have attitudes and they keep getting added to. There were seven, I think there's now nine. And they're all very much interlinked. And so um, curiosity, sort of kindly awareness... Uh, curiosity or beginner's mind very very important because when we say well we know it all then we've got no space to learn you know what there's a there's a zen buddhist uh saying which i can't remember who it is which one it is now but it says something like you know in the in the beginner's mind there's many possibilities and in the expert's mind there are few so i that's why i'm slightly resistant to the word expert because it's like staying open open if we go all oh, i know then we'll never learn anything, right? If we go, oh, let me be curious with this. And mindfulness is really that invitation to go, can I be curious with this? So, for example, at the moment, Ian has got a certain amount of noise at home, okay? And so that may be creating a certain level of frustration, okay? And so it's like, well, you can just sit with frustration and go, well, I know I'm frustrated. Or you can become curious with frustration. How is that making me feel right now? And I don't mean up in the mind, I mean down in the body. Like literally, what does frustration feel like? And this is one of the techniques of getting yourself out of um, difficult emotional states, is going, how does this manifest in the body? Because if you can consider it, all emotions are felt in the body. And yet when we get into stress patterning, we try and stay in the mind and fix it. And that's, it's just a bonkers place to be. It's like, you can't fix it. It's three in the morning, you're stressing about your exam. You know, what you really need to do is sleep, but you can't sleep because you've got adrenaline and cortisol pumping around your body. So how can I come to this, be aware? So another way of saying mindfulness is uh, non-judgmental present moment awareness. So present moment awareness, I'm aware I am stressed, I'm lying in bed and I'm stressed, or I'm sitting under the the roof of people are banging around. This is creating this emotion, okay? Now, can I be non-judgmental about it? Can I just explore it in some way? Wow, this is interesting. Because just if I can continue with this for a moment, I know it was just a short little question, but just, you know. You're putting off question number three but i'll let you i'll, oh, let, go on, you, go on. I'll, no, I'll let you play, i'll let you play along go on, finish okay. off finish off so just just to play with this idea so you know we have how do we know we're here how do you literally know you are here right now because you know through your senses right you can hear people talking you have an awareness of your bottom on the seat feet on the floor if you if you now sense into them maybe a minute ago you had no awareness and then you can also just notice how you can move your attention around You've got sen- all the five senses working, touch, taste, smell, sight, etc. Okay. And all of our experiences 
come into us in this raw state. So the one I use is like, there's a dog barking. What is a dog barking? Actually, if we peel off the labels, it's just sound waves hitting your ear that your brain magically, and we still don't really know how it does, pulls in and goes, eh, interpret that as a dog barking. Okay, so that is your sensory experience. But from there, we then layer on something else, a thought about it. Okay, so it's a sound actually, it's just barking. Then we go, it's dog, because we recognize sound of dog because we pull, pull in past experience, memory. And then we have maybe an opinion about it, that flipping dog that doesn't stop barking, right? And now what? We've layered something else on, frustration, right? And off we go. And we can, you know, people can, and my partner can talk about that for, <laughs> for days, the dogs, the barking. And what's happening in that moment? Stress, right? Because we've now not only become aware of the present moment experience, but we've judged it. How do we step out of that? become curious with ourselves. That's really interesting. I'm noticing that I'm having this sensory experience called a, the sound of a dog barking and I'm now noticing my mind has jumped into that thing called judging. Can I in any way find some acceptance? And sometimes you can go straight there and go, let me be accepting of the dog. It's just a dog barking. And if you can't, then you just go one layer back and go, okay, I can't accept this because it's really annoying me. So can I accept that in this moment, there is a certain level of frustration here. Is there any peace to be found around that? And then to bring in, you know, what would be a mindful practice, which would be something that would be useful for people who may be listening to this, going, well, how do you, you know, calm yourself down, which is to come to your breath. Because when we're stressed, we, we tend to breathe very in a very shallow way, our heart beats fast, we've got high blood levels and sugar levels, etc., etc. And if we focus in on our breath, normally, naturally, the breath starts to deepen. And as it starts to deepen, it's almost like you're sending a message to your nervous system to say, do you know what? I've got this. You know, I'm amygdala. I know you think I'm being attacked by a wild animal, but actually it's just a dog barking. It's just the builders in standing on my roof. It's just an exam. It's okay. I've got this. You calm the nervous system down and then literally your prefrontal cortex, part of your brain, which allows, you know, allows the, the access to areas like the memory, come back online again and then you can actually do what you need to do. So that's how you begin to learn to focus. And so the theory is, you know, you don't need to sit on top of some mountain in some Buddhist temple to achieve this level of calm. The idea is that with practice, you can find that level of calm no matter what. That your calm, your peace, your happiness does not depend on exterior circumstances being how you need them to be. Because, let's face it, very, very rarely do we actually get our ducks in our line, right? Just as we get one duck in line, another one quacks off. <laughs> so give up, let the ducks float, you know. <laughs> Yes, let's hear it for the ducks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So get back on track then. Uh, question number three. Yeah. We've uh, we've already had one question about about John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn is actually quite a prolific author. To the nearest three, to the nearest three, 
How many books has he written on mindfulness and mindfulness-related topics? And I'm going to include co-authored as well. Oh, blimey. Uh, the quick answer is, I've no idea. <laughs> Go on, uh, guess. Absolutely no idea. I mean, he's, he wrote... He wrote his first book quite late on. I mean, he started in 1979 in Massachusetts University Hospital, creating this crazy thing called an MBSR course where he took his training in Buddhism, and he's not a Buddhist, and he stripped it away, he took away all the alming and everything else, and just brought it to a 21st century uh, audience, you know? And he did that, what, what's that now? Uh, 39, so, you know, 40-plus years ago. And it took a while for it to 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 trickle down and I know his book I was quite surprised when I saw that his first book wasn't written till I think the mid 80s or something so since the mid 80s it's just it's just I would imagine grown exponentially and I would guess there must be if he's co-authoring as well there must be at least 30 plus books Ah, maybe my problem is that I, I said he was a prolific author and your definition of a prolific author and mine are not quite the same thing. Uh-huh. The, the answer is 13. 13, OK. 13, which is quite modest compared to what, what you said. But I will give you a bonus point for, for the title of each of his books that you can mention. <laughs> God blimey. You must have read one of them. I have, yeah. Where, I'm looking over at my bookshelf right now going, what's that one called? <laughs> Uh, well, there's one called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Which was um, his third book, written in 1994. Yep. Yeah. And now I'm, you see, now I'm having an amygdala hijack. <laughs> I can feel it. I can see, I can, I've been put on the spot. And so my memory banks have gone, we can't talk to you anymore. We've got, we've got adrenaline and cortisol rushing around your body. We're not available. Isn't that interesting? It's like stage fright or, or when, yeah. you know, I've, I've stood on stage and given talks that I've given many times and I've suddenly gone blank because something's happened and it's like it completely throws you and you have you have no idea who you are what what time it is what your name is why you're there (laughs) try when you're perimenopausal because then on top of that you've got brain fog so literally you're going so this is my son um um Ermintrude, Olivia, uh, no, it's a boy, uh, uh, Oscar, there we go. <laughs> well, anyway, just, just, to, just to get you out of your brain frog, he's brain fog. <laughs> I ducks, like that. ducks, frogs, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, his first book was titled Full Catastrophe. Full well, Catastrophe Living, yes. Full Catastrophe Living. Yes. His second book was Mindfulness Meditation for Everyday Life. Okay. He's he's done other things like coming to our senses, the mindful way through depression, arriving at your own door. I, to be honest, I'm impressed by these people that can write so many books on one specific subject. Yes and no, I would say, because on one side, it's incredibly simple. It's like, what are you doing? Come back. <laughs> Don't judge it. It's that simple, right? But on the other side... If you think about it, how, I mean, everything that happens in our lives is, is our perception. And depending on our perception, we have an experience, you know. So it can come from so many angles. My, my, my experience of myself is that I am this type of person. 
And if you start digging into that, it's like, well, where does that idea come from? It's just a bunch of thoughts. Where do those thoughts come from? They come from the fact I was told a million times by my teachers or my parents I was a certain way. Or my society tells me I'm a female, therefore I'm this like this and not like this. You know, and so you can just you can dig into that whole area. Or now we're digging into how can mindfulness help you, you know, learn stuff? How can it help you to be a better parent? How can it help you to work with your employees? How can it help you to turn up to the fact that you, you've got cancer? How can it help you with your teenage child who's depressed? How can it's like it touches the whole of human experience and human experience is endless it's massive so in a way i'm i know from my personal experience i'm like well i could just do mindfulness which is like a sort of generic version which is we've got a you know mind that wanders how can we bring it back and how can we look after ourselves but from that you know which story do you want to to look at so yeah, I'm I'm surprised it's only thirteen books. <laughs> it could be one hundred and thirty-three. <laughs> Actually, what what you just said does tie with with one of the questions that I'd like to ask. Do you have any success stories that you use when you're explaining to people about the power of mindfulness? I think, and from I see it during the sessions when I'm working with people where they have these gorgeous aha moments um you know I, I had someone the other day who is terribly terribly anxious and and you know she's had to stop working because she's in burnout and she's young huh? she's only 26 or something but clearly she's come from some past experience that's been deeply stressful you know there's, there's a lot around trauma these days and rightly so because they think you know it used to be that people who've dealt with trauma they're you know they're the odd one they're the, they're the five to ten percent and now I think the numbers now are more like 90 percent of people have dealt with trauma because trauma isn't just being in a war zone that war zone could have been at home in your childhood it could have been that crippling disease you've dealt with it could be a whole bunch of experiences plus you know the big ones as well being you know abused in some way or whatever so a lot of people are wandering around on this planet dealing to greater or lesser extent well with whatever they're dealing with in their own minds. And so I was looking at this lass and she was so, I just recognised myself in her to be honest with you, she was so anxious and so, you know, worried about what everyone thought of her. And we just sort of deconstructed a situation for her where she was like, I, I go to yoga because I want to relax my body because I'm so tense all the time but then I just what's happening now because I've been doing the courses I'm crying and I'm like well that's good because that's that is your body's natural way of releasing and she goes I know but I feel so shamed by by crying I can't bear to be in front of other people who are uh, when I'm upset and I was like okay let's pull this apart and we just pulled apart the experience of what is the thought because it is just a thought no one is actually judging her what is the thought and the thought is you're not allowed to show your emotions it's like, well, who hasn't been told that at least once in their lives, right? You're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to be anxious. You're not allowed to be angry. You know, you're just not allowed, basically. And yet emotions are totally normal. Especially if you're British. Especially if you're British. For goodness sake, don't, you know, stiff up a lip and all of that. And yet, when we don't deal with our emotions properly, guess what? They don't go anywhere. They just, they, they either come out in full force other people and then you have that toxic 
sort of hangover where you then live to regret what you've just said or they go inwards and then that's all you know we talk about pandemic gosh you look at the numbers of people who are dealing you know i mean suicide rates people who have real issues with themselves in some way they're in they're massive depression is one of the biggest problems on this planet isn't this ironic that we've got we're the most certainly in the west we're the most educated and well-fed we've ever been and yet we're the most stressed out and depressed you know our st our standard of living is high yet our standard of living on the inside as it were is the lowest it's ever been so it's it needs to be looked at it needs to be addressed which is why it's so wonderful it's going into education because it's like if you haven't got parents who know about this stuff i didn't have parents who knew about this stuff then when are you going to learn this well maybe it's just a teacher who comes in and goes right let's notice how we're feeling let's name the emotion that's here right on, uh, so aware of what you're doing whilst you're doing it without judgment this just this emotion and now let's see if we can calm down this thing called the fight and flight mechanism few gentle breaths and now we can come back and now we can learn isn't that wonderful now that is a skill that they're learning you know specifically to be able to you know and it is it is um, management of your students uh, you know it isn't not but it's also giving them life skills that they do that every other day at school when they come when they grow up and they go to university and when they have a car crash and when their relationship breaks down and when you know x y and z happens maybe there's some part of their brain that will now remember oh yeah there's a way of dealing with all of this stuff and it's not to push it down and ignore it or drink it away or shop it away or whatever it is that you do to escape feeling emotions but you actually look after yourself in that moment and so when we talk about mindfulness, mindfulness is, you know, saying about it, about the sort of definition, we also talk about mindfulness being like the bird of mindfulness. And it has two wings. One wing is awareness. Okay, so really training your focus. But the other wing is compassion. So because there's been a lot of sort of arguments about whether we should be using mindfulness to help train people in the army to shoot better, right? I mean, you know, ooh, it comes from Buddhism, peace and love, and yet they're using these things to, you know, stay calm, be able to shoot properly. I mean, you know, but then it's like, well, that's not, that's just one wing. The other wing is compassion, right? Is is like looking after yourself and looking after other people. And I know that there's been a lot of, you're like, oh, all these people just sitting around on mats meditating, you know, how are they helping the world? But if you think about it, and I know from personal experience, when I come out of doing my 20 minutes or 30 minutes every day, I am a better me. I am not the, what's the way of saying it? I'm my favorite me, right? The me that's open, generous, kind, present, compassionate, able to deal with somebody else who isn't actually, right? So that I meet them in a, in a healthy way. And that has a ripple effect, right? That's affecting my partner, my child, the people I come into contact. Now, is that not the change that you want to see in the world? You know, Gandhi's famous thing, be the, be the change you want to see in the world. It's like, this is how you do it. And you do it, you know, one starfish at a time, as it were, you know. And I love that the analogy. The guy is walking down the, the, down the beach and, and he's picking up one. There's a whole bunch of starfish that have all, all come onto the beach and um, he's picking each one up separately and throwing it into the water. And then another guy comes along and goes, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to save these, these starfish. And he goes, yeah, but 
because you know there's thousands of them how are you going to do that you're not going to make any difference at all and he goes well it's important to this starfish that i'm holding in my hand as he throws it into the water it's like that's it you just you just do what you can but it it, it begins with you sorry i know this is about <laughs> learning but it is part of the process it's like if you're training to do anything Whatever it is, you know, being an English teacher to, to becoming a, a, a doctor, a scientist, or whatever. It's like, that's great what you're learning to do. But what else are you going to take with you? You know, that compassion for yourself, that kindly awareness for other people. That, you, that is just going to be the, the, the wonderful ripple effect, hopefully. So it's very powerful stuff. Given that, that when we learn, we inevitably make mistakes it, making mistakes is all part of the process of, of learning and I, I know that when i was in teacher training college and we were, we were having our first classes with with our students i had some awful experiences could i pry and ask that when you first started getting involved in, in mindfulness do you have any spectacular failures that you'd be prepared to share it's an interesting question that um, have I done any real, real boo-boos? I think sometimes, you know, as you can hear, I do like to talk. And so I think it's not, I can't think of a, th if I'm honest with you, right in this moment, maybe something will come to me. I can't think of a specific thing. But there is, um, from mindfulness training, uh, a need to be really open. And so, you know, like I said before about the, the beginner's mind, it's so important. So even though you think you know what's going on with that person, you know, don't assume that you do. And so I know from experience that sometimes that's been maybe my, my downfall. And so I've been going, yeah, right, because it feels like this, doesn't it? And it's like that, isn't it? And then somebody will have to go, um, actually, I don't, I, no, that's not me at all. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like that. And it's like, okay. And it's like, ah. Note to self, do not assume you know anything, ever. Ask, you know, have your mindfulness ears open and do active listening, which is, you know, another powerful tool. Listening is so very important. You know, when you talk, you only hear what you know already. When you listen, you're going to learn something new. And I think that's a very important lesson that I'm still learning. I'm still totally learning. And I think the other one that I've learned a lot through experience is the power of a sense of humor. That we're not, we're all imperfect human beings, right? And the problem is that when we get tight and tense and stressed, we have a tendency to want to try and hide our errors. And yet actually it's incredibly uniting when you can just say, do you know what, I've just completely muffed that up. That's not what I wanted to say at all. Or I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. Or, you know, it's like this human factor and that you find it funny. Because when we're in a place of fear, it's not funny, right? It's deadly serious. Uh, this situation is really serious. It's all going wrong. I'm wrong. They're wrong. Everything's wrong. And we literally tense up. The minute we find a sense of humor about something, it is, it's like fear, fear hasn't got us anymore. It just hasn't. And so it's also quite a useful thing just to sort of on a, a thing for maybe for your listeners. It's like if you find yourself getting really tight around something, can you imagine yourself in, you know, maybe in a, in a couple of days time or a couple of weeks time telling this as an anecdote? You know, God, I got so stressed about this and this happened. And, you know, you should have seen me. 
Now, is there any element of this being a little bit comical? Because that can just help you open the door to another possibility of maybe this isn't quite as serious as your mind is telling you. Because it, it genuinely isn't. It really isn't. It's definitely important to keep to maintain a, a sense of humour. Yeah. Yes. Um, we're we're running out of time, unfortunately. I'd like to try and squeeze in a couple more questions. The first question is: You've been through the process of learning mindfulness and learning to use it for yourself. What having having that experience? What advice and recommendations could you give to the listener if they were thinking of exploring mindfulness for themselves and learning how to benefit from it? Yeah, great. So I like to use the analogy of trying to train a puppy dog. If you've ever had a puppy dog or you can bring to mind a puppy dog, you know, an untrained dog will sit at your feet, look up at you lovingly <laughs> and then wander off and you'll go, no, no. Wait a minute, I want you to sit. Sit and stay. Now, how would you train your puppy dog? Literally, if you think about it, what would you do to let, make your puppy dog stay? So usually people volunteer, well, I'd, um, I'd, you know, I'd give it treats. I would pat it on the back for being a good dog when it did stay. I would, I don't know how many times you'd have to do it and go, oh, over and over. And I go, yeah, right. And how would you, what attitude would you bring to that? Patience. Yeah, kindness, sense of fun. And so it is with our wandering puppy dog minds, that our minds are untrained on the whole, and they wander about all over the place. How do you bring them back? By keep inviting them with a kind voice. Well done, you've noticed you've wandered off, come back. And know that it will wander off again. And don't be frustrated when it wanders. Don't judge it, right? Just accept it's wandered off. But now we've noticed, and that's actually the bit of the training. It's not, funnily enough, when people go, well, mindfulness is about not having thoughts. It's like, no, no, you're allowed to have thoughts. The training is noticing that you have thoughts, recognizing that, not judging it, and bringing the mind back to the present moment. Why? Not because we want to get good at being meditators, but because we want to get good at life. We want to notice when our focus is off on something that is stressful or not what we want to be doing and come back. And the more times you practice that from a neuroscience point of view, you are going to strengthen your neural pathways. Okay, so just get a little bit sciencey here for a moment. Every time you practice something that you start to create new neural pathways and that your brain literally grows those connections. So what helps you? Patience. Repetition, you know, and, and the attitude that you bring to it, you know, being kind to yourself, a sense of fun, curiosity, you know, be kind to yourself, your poor little puppy dog mind, you know, it's a useful analogy, I think. Puppy dogs, lovely. I'm, I'm a dog person, so I, I take that on board completely. Yeah. And the final question, I'm afraid. If you had one concrete takeaway that would be most useful for a listener, what would it be? I guess I would say that you always have a choice. And I think that so often we feel trapped by our old habits and ways of being. And I mean that overthinking mind, um, emotional states, um, the ways that we turn up to the world that can be deeply stressful. And that when we don't have any tools, we just keep running the same old story. 
if you don't find that serving you, then you might consider doing something new. And that really, I feel that mindfulness gives you that choice. Do I want to go down this route again? Or do I want to take control of my mind that's dragging, mean, to use another dog analogy, it's like taking the untrained dog for a walk and it's dragging you off down alleyways you don't want to go. It's like, do I want to go there? No. Then let's keep coming back. And that before we just got dragged off, but now it's like, no, no, you've got a choice. If you want to learn how to, you know, concrete that choice, get that choice as an, a reality in your life, then you need, you need to start practicing something new. So I really recommend you know, there's loads of ways of exploring mindfulness. There's loads of great talks on TEDx. There's loads of books. God, John Kabat-Zinn's got 13 of them, apparently. <laughs> um, but, you know, to not and not to just explore it from um, a theoretical point of view, because otherwise it's just another bit of knowledge that you have. It's like that knowledge is not going to make any difference. You've got to practice. You just have to. There's no way about it. If you were an Olympic athlete and you needed to train yourself to, to do the best you could, you wouldn't read books about it, would you? You'd get out up at five in the morning and you'd run and you'd run whether you wanted to or you don't want to. You just do it because you have to. It's your intention. And so it is with training the mind. It's just you, you get up every day and you do the work and then you see the benefits. If people wanted more information from you, where can they find you? Okay, I have, I suppose my main port of call is my website, which is www.mbsr-mindfulness.com. Okay, so you can find me there. I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram. But I, I think possibly the best way would be through the website. Uh, we've had ducks, we've had dogs, uh, I think we even had frogs at one point. It's been a very animalistic uh, experience. Emma, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'll probably end up re-recording this bit <laughs> because all this banging is just driving my head in. <laughs> I definitely need to have... I, I think I do my mindfulness with tea. Tea and mindfulness for me are, are intimately related. So I, I'm about to go off and make myself a cup of tea and a, a, a quiet sit-down where I will consider my my feelings and my experiences and try and count out of it. Okay. So, uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ian. Take care. Take care. <laughs>